Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Greetings. This is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D. After a brief hiatus, Emily Carney, Tom Hill, and I are back with a fascinating interview we conducted with John Charles about the Manned Orbiting Laboratory Program. In this episode, Emily Carney leads our interview, and we'll learn how John became interested in MOL in the first place, and then we'll spend some time discussing the art of MOL. Welcome, everyone, to our next installment of uh, Space 3D. And this is Eleanor Rangers, one of your co-hosts. And uh, this evening we have a, our full cast of characters online. We have our other co-hosts, uh, Emily Carney. Hey, how y'all doing? And Tom Hill. Good to be back. All right. And we are pretty excited because we are going to have a chance to chat with someone we had interviewed last year. For those of you who listened to season one of our Space 3D podcast, you may have uh, heard John Charles, who gave a terrific interview talking about some of the later aspects of the space shuttle program and, and space station. We knew that he also had an interest in the manned orbiting laboratory, and he was very gracious in giving us some additional time this evening to talk about MOL. So what we are going to do is give a brief introduction, and then we're going to turn over the interview primarily to Emily this evening. Um, and John. And I think Tom and I will inter- interject with questions as, uh, as, as they come up. All right. So without further ado, let's introduce John Charles. Uh, John is a longtime NASA life scientist and science manager with a lifelong interest in spaceflight history. He retired from NASA on February 22nd, 2018, after nearly 33 years in a career that started as a cardiovascular investigator on space shuttle flights, and his career spanned Mir missions and the shuttle flight of John Glenn. And he also oversaw the joint U.S.-Russian one-year mission on the International Space Station and the twin study, and peaked as the chief scientist of NASA's human research program, guiding NASA biomedical research on the International Space Station in preparation for sending astronauts to Mars. And now John is the first scientist in residence at Space Center Houston, the official visitor center of the Johnson Space Center. And he is also an emeritus employee of the Johnson Space Center mentoring uh, young scientists. He's an adjunct professor of kinesiology at Texas A&M University. And he and his wife, Kathy, own Act for Space LLC, a private outreach education research and consulting business. And uh, in addition... John is applying his decades of experience in space biomedical research and oversight to understanding human health and performance aspects of the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, which was a canceled program by the U.S. Air Force and the National Reconnaissance Office to put military astronauts into low Earth orbit to conduct detailed observations of Soviet and Chinese capabilities during the Cold War. So with that, I am going to turn over the discussion to Emily and John. 
All right. Hi, Dr. Charles. Uh, nice to talk to you once again. Hi, Emily. So, um, yeah, I haven't talked to you since Space Fest, so this is a nice treat. Right. I'm really curious, um, and I think we, obviously, we touched upon this a little during Space Fest, but I'm very uh, curious. Your background is your, you know, obviously, you're, you're a, you know, you're a doctor. You have a background in, you know, the life sciences. Why the obsession with a uh, space program that, was canceled, you know, almost 50 years ago that never made a single flight. Because I think I was talking to somebody about this, and they were like, why are you into stuff that got canceled? (laughs) You know, know, it does seem kind of counterintuitive. So what what really, you know, started your interest in, you know, the manned orbiting laboratory program? You know, number one, because it was, for such a long time, it was so secret, it was shrouded in secrecy. And number two, you know, it, it never made it off the ground. Right. Well, Emily, you're right. This is, uh, I call this my personal indulgence. Uh, it has yes. <laughs> it has no obvious relevance to anything that we're doing today, but I think maybe by the end of the of the discussion, I'll have, I'll convince you that it's got a little bit of relevance. Uh, but the uh, I'm a I'm a doctor of physiology. I'm a PhD, so I'm not actually the kind of doctor that can cure people and get paid a lot of money for it. I'm I'm a seeker after truth as a PhD physiologist, and I was able to to sp- to get a have a wonderful career, thirty almost 33 years uh, as a NASA life scientist and uh, soon thereafter as a NASA life sciences manager, which gave me insights into how programs are run because I had to start figuring out how to run programs. You mentioned the, or Eleanor mentioned the twin study and the, the year-long mission. I was also involved in the John Glenn flight and the Columbia flight and, and other things. So I have a sense of how programs are put together and one of the things that's one of the things, one of the many things that interests me about the manned orbiting laboratory program is I can't figure out what they were trying to do. You know, it was first and foremost the Air Force's toe uh, in the door for manned spaceflight. And forgive me for being sexist, but in those benighted days, it was all about the men, the X-Pi chromosomes that were going into space. Uh, so in the Air Force had, had lost the dinosaur program on December 10th of 1963, and on the same the same press release said, but guess what? We're going to start this manned orbiting laboratory program, which had been in study for several, I think a couple of years at that point in various uh, different iterations. So it wasn't the dynamic flying uh, wings, you know, wings and landing gear kind of thing that all the Air Force pilots were hoping for, but at least it was... It was blue suitors in space, people wearing Air Force uniforms, doing Air Force work in an Air Force space vehicle uh, in outer space. And so they, they figured that was the natural progression for the Air Force. And, and it sort of uh, it echoes today when we talk about the new Space Force and whether it's going to be uh, the Air Force continuing to do what it does in space or if they're going to pull those parts of the Air Force out and make them a, their own separate military establishment so there's a that's an interesting uh discussion uh it's sort of an interesting reflection of something that was going on as far back as the 50s and the 60s now why as to why i'm interested in it the legitimizing excuse i give is that i'm interested in the space life sciences aspects of the mol i i'm not a physicist although i'm fascinated by physics and i'm sort of a an armchair physicist but i i can't really do the calculations that talk about how how fine a resolution a camera or a mirror can have, you know, from a certain altitude above the Earth. I've sort of self-taught myself enough orbital mechanics to be, uh, I hope, conversant, if not annoying to the, the professionals. So, but, you know, and there's interesting aspects of the orbit that the, the MOL was going to be in, 
that I need to pursue more as I find more people that can like that can explain it to me using small words and short sentences. But there's there's just so much about the program that is interesting to me, not just the life sciences, but the life sciences aspects begat the work that was done on Skylab, which begat the work that was done on the shuttle, which has begat or begotten the work that is being done on the space station. The If you look at uh, the toilet on Skylab, if you look at the body mass measurement device, if you look at the food that was used on Skylab, they all had their origins in the MOL program. NASA was working with the Air Force on these two parallel space station programs, the, the manned orbiting laboratory and the Apollo applications program, which evolved into Skylab. And part of the reason, one of the reasons the MOO was canceled after just a six-year run in uh, June of 1969 was that Congress couldn't tell the difference between the NASA space station and the, the military space station. Congress said, why are we paying for two of these things? And if we're going to only have one, let's go with NASA's because it's bigger and it's more capable and will give us more data. The funny thing is, is that the Air Force could not in open session explain to the Congress the difference between the MOL and the what became Skylab. And the difference was the MOL was in a polar orbit going over the North and South Pole and covering every spot on the Earth every 24 hours, specifically so it could take high-resolution photographs of denied territory in the Soviet Union and in China and, of course, in Southeast Asia and wherever, wherever else there may be things that needed to be looked at with up to a four-inch resolution. That is, from 80 or 90 miles up, they could see things as small as four inches, as small as a baseball on the ground. And so there was a lot of discussion about that uh, enclosed doors, but they, that was classified, and they could not justify their existence during open congressional hearings. And the congressman would say things like, why do you have to launch into a polar orbit? Why? And that meant you had to launch out of California. When we've got a perfectly good launch complex here in Florida that we've already bought and paid for, why are you building a duplicate in California? And why do you have to go into this polar orbit? And all the, all the Air Force spokesmen could say in public settings was because that's what the mission requires. And the congressman would get so mad at them for not explaining how the mission required that. You know, they never – apparently they couldn't see their way clear to taking the congressman into a closed room and giving him a pre-briefing and saying, okay, we're going to give you a security clearance. Here's why. And then – please don't ask us these questions in public because we can't answer you. The Russians already know, but we can't go on record as saying why. So there was, that was an interesting aspect. And there's also, uh, Eleanor, there's also, I'm sorry, Emily, there's also aspects of uh, the programs, the program being put together. When the, the MOL was first announced, it was announced in 63, it was authorized in 65, there were Air Force guys going around saying, well, you know, it's only a, a seven-mission project right now, but we wouldn't have committed to it if we didn't think it was going to go operational and run, you know, for a long, long time and keep launching these things and, and sending crews up to do spying. And they actually made decisions for this short-term finite life program that looked like they were buying hardware for a long-term, for the long-term use. So they bought spacesuits that were capable of spacewalks when there were no spacewalks planned in the uh, in the program, they bought uh, they scarred the vehicle to be able to do rendezvous and docking when there was no docking planned for the program. But they figured as long as we're you know in for a penny in for a pound, we we have no. They were saying to themselves, we have no intention of seeing this program end, and it's only going to get bigger. So we got to start start 
planning for the things that are going on now. So what I'm saying, Emily, is is the one of the reasons as a manager that I'm interested in this program is because it is a a third or a fourth example of a human spaceflight program, and it gives us a chance to look at the decisions made by the decision makers as they went along and, you know, in the context of the resources they had, the budgets they had, the times, uh, the timelines they had, things like that, to see why they made certain decisions. It's fun to go back and look at NASA's history and understand why certain decisions were made. And, and not just because I'm a NASA guy, but speaking as a person that's looked at a lot of NASA decisions, I think almost all of NASA's decisions have been logical, if you know the real facts. Same thing for the Russian program. There's some there's some oddballs about the Russian program that look very much like personal initiatives, like this or that uh, chief designer had this or that capability that he wanted to make sure was included in the program. But otherwise, things generally look like they made a lot of sense. I think we're seeing the same thing in the Chinese program. But here's here's an entire space program that has never been studied in any kind of detail, or if it has, it's only been rarely. And here's a chance to look at it with sort of a clear eye and say, well, which of these decisions makes sense for a, a short-term finite program and which ones are really just laying the groundwork for future programs and which ones don't make any sense at all, and then try and go back and figure out why, you know, why the, those decisions are made. So, so I come at it, Emily, from a, a variety of directions. I come at it from the life sciences. I come at, at it from the, the management a- angle. And also I come at it, uh, as uh, Eleanor mentioned, the, the fact that uh, that was classified for so many years. And uh, it started happening when I was a kid, when I was, uh, I guess, 10 or 12 years old. Uh, the MOL was first announced. And I wanted to know more. And I never did. It took me 50 years to find out more about the MOL program. And so it's sort of one of those uh, one of those forbidden fruit kind of things. You know, if you want it for so long and you can never have it, suddenly it's all you can think about. It's an obsession. Let's call it my mole obsession. Yes. <laughs> my next question is going to be about um, during uh, Space Fest, uh, you, did a, you did a kind of a small mini presentation within the panel. You it, uh, focused a lot on the art from the uh, MOL program. Uh, by people like uh, Jacoby. I'm just curious, you know, a, a lot of this art I, I personally have never seen before. I, I'm kind of a huge uh, nerd about this subject, and even I hadn't seen most of it or any of it. Where did you, you know, where did you get the this, you know, MOL art? And, you know, really, what was kind of the, what was the purpose of it? What was the turnaround for it, you know? Uh, what was, you know, some of the art I thought was kind of funny. You know, it sort of depicted Skylab type stuff like you know the the sky the shower and stuff like that some of the art really made me laugh because it was kind of you know trying to trying to show life in space you know and it very mid 60s but you know it kind of had that sort of a sci-fi I guess I don't know how to put it it had a kind of a sci-fi you know reality to it where you know what was the turnaround for the art and really what was the purpose for a lot of the MOL art yeah Emily this is this is one of the benefits of having reached an advanced stage and having a fairly good paycheck for a lot of years is I can really indulge myself in these frivolous things like this collection of art. What you're referring to is a set of about 35, in fact, exactly 35 paintings done by a man named Neil Jacoby. And I believe he was, it was the work he did at Douglas Aircraft Company uh, about the time Douglas and McDonald joined up, and it became McDonnell Douglas Aircraft Company. But he was at the California. He was he was what they called McDonnell Douglas West, out in, out in Huntington Beach and out on the West Coast. And I was told by another uh, a person that worked with them at the time that their business cards, you know, McDonnell and Douglas didn't like each other, 
And so when they handed when they gave people their business cards, they would just cover up the McDonald part with their thumb and just said Douglas. So there was a little bit of intra-company uh, friction and rivalry. But this was the work that you're referring to is available, and you can look at it uh, at uh, my my uh, website, which is www.astrocryptotriviology.com slash mol dash art. That's mole art. And forgive the name, but Astro Crypto Triviology sort of defines the, my interest in spaceflight topics. Those things that are related to spaceflight and they're trivial, that's below most people's attention. And crypto meaning they're hidden, uh, hard to find. But if you go there, you can look at these paintings, including, uh, well, you can look at all the paintings. And I've tried to describe all the paintings uh, verbally. This is work that I believe was done in about 1968. There's evidence of maybe two separate portfolios, three paintings that might have been done as early as 66 or 67, as if Jacoby had been given the assignment and then the assignment was terminated and he had to go do something else. And I, when I say assignment, Neil Jacoby was in the uh, was in the 50s and 60s and even in the 70s. He was a one of the commercial artists working for McDonnell Douglas. Uh, according to uh, another artist that I talked to, they had several art departments that would give, give have different responsibilities, uh, responsibilities such as painting the banners and the decals and the backdrops for exhibitions like at the Paris Air Show, and they all like to go to the Paris Air Show because that was the, the thing to go do uh, every spring. Uh, also putting together artwork to illustrate concepts for contract proposals, putting together artwork that would illustrate concepts for brochures, for sales brochures, and you wonder who they're selling to. I mean, how many different customers can there be, be for a space program? You'd think there's one or maybe two, NASA and the Air Force. But there was no shortage of activity being done to get the word out about their commercial products. And the, the products that I was interested in from McDonnell Douglas are the, the MOL, the Mad Orbiting Laboratory descriptions. Now, Jacoby seems to have been given... Uh, the the assignment of illustrating life inside the manned orbiting laboratory. So if you think about that by itself, that's fascinating because we have very, very little up until 2015 or so, we have very little information about what the inside of the manned orbiting laboratory looks like. And there were there were competing ideas from the from early concepts that's that because there was no new information, they just kept being rediscovered and reinvented. There were competing ideas from 1963 and 1964 that persisted into the 2010s about what the inside of the MOL looks like. And now we know from from not only Jacoby's paintings but also from uh, declassified imagery put out by the National Reconnaissance Office in October of 2015 when they had their massive declassification uh, event for the MOL that allows us to see what the inside of the MOL looked like. And with, with those photographs, we can now look at the paintings that Jacoby painted, illustrating his idea of life inside the MOL. His ideas were based on those photographs taken inside the mock-up built by Douglas Aircraft for for the MOL program. So he was he was sort of casting forward his imagination and trying to, to put people inside, two men, trying to put those two men inside the MOL and, and show them doing the things they would do for their 30-day missions. And 30 days back in the 60s, a 30-day flight was considered an ultra-long duration space flight. So they had exercising and they had, they had hygiene. They had a, a, a small 
shower head that they called the uh, I forgot what the name of what it say now, but what they called it now, but it was a glove that had a a shower head built into it, and you could wash yourself down, and then it had you flip a switch, and it sucked the water back out a separate little hose on the glove, so you could you could siphon the water off of your your now clean body. Uh, so they had those ideas. They had food that looked very much like the Apollo food, which became the Skylab food, which became the shuttle food, because they were working with the Army at uh, the, Natick, the Natick Labs in Massachusetts to build uh, food systems for this program. They had the sleeping bags that they slept in, uh, which became Apollo sleeping bags, which became a Skylab sleeping bag and a shuttle sleeping bag. So there's all those kinds of things. But Jacoby was, as far as I can tell, commissioned to to build a portfolio to show what these things look like and some of this art looks like it was intended to go into animations so if you remember the 60s there was a lot of stop motion animation in the industrial uh, world so they could show things like the solid rocket boosters falling off the side of the titan 3m launcher and he he actually painted you know paintings of the titan during launch and he also painted at least one uh, maybe as a test case, at least one of the the solid rocket boosters on a separate piece of paper that I imagine you could photograph sequentially on separate frames uh, falling off the side of the rocket, showing what it would have looked like when the SRBs fell off the main rocket body. He painted some some graphics showing the orbit it was going to go into, and and, the, and he painted a lot of scenes showing several sh- scenes showing the launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base from Space Launch Complex. Six called Slick Six by those on the inside, uh, which became later this the space shuttle uh, launch pad for the shuttle launches that were to have taken place from California and has most recently been used for the Delta Four Heavy, I think, launches at uh, Vandenberg. So there's so many things about that, but but Emily, you didn't see that before. You have never seen that art before because that art was locked up. And it was in. No, I've never seen it. Yeah, it was in some. It was in <laughs> yeah. the garage of a retired engineer from McDonnell Douglas. And all I can imagine is that the, when the MOL program is canceled, the art director said, "Okay, this one's off the books. We're not going to be charging anybody. Nobody's going to be charging to this account anymore. Gather up all your stuff. There's a dumpster outside. Just toss it in there, and we'll move on to the next money-making project." And luckily, an engineer apparently associated or at least cognizant of this probably after hours took the stuff out of the dumpster took it home and put it in his garage and there it stayed for 50 more years until he died and the family was cleaning out grandpa's stuff and they came across this box of art and they said somebody might want this let's see if we can find a museum to buy it from us and long story short i was uh, i was a friend of a friend of the guy that that was asked to look for somebody to buy this stuff and I eventually ended up saying, look, I'll buy it myself because museums don't really want to buy uh, undocumented, you know, unsourced material like this. And I recognized it for what it was. So, Emily, when you look at the, my website or those paintings that I show in my presentations or in my traveling art show, uh, that is the first time you can see that stuff because it was literally locked away for decades. Personal favorite is the uh, man vomiting picture. I'm looking through them right now. <laughs> Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Why? And see, this is just one of the questions that so fascinates me about this project. Why would a company trying to sell their spaceship to a, the government, because only the government could afford it back in those days, why would they show one of the government heroes, an astronaut, having a bad day? How is this going to sell a spaceship? How is this going to sell make the company make the government confident that you're, you've got a good spaceship to sell them? 
Here, let me show you. Let me show you yep, one yep. of your guys having the worst possible day in space flight. And so, but uh, you know, sometimes I, I look. There's another. I think there's another picture in there that just shows the husband and wife in the bathroom. You see that picture as well, the study in pink, sort of toward the end there. Uh, you'll get okay. Yeah, it's it's, at the, it's at the end of the I, website. Oh boy. But okay. But I think, the, uh, the mole activation website uh, or link appears okay, to be bad. Go, I uh, get a 404 when I go oh, to that. Oh boy, that's a shame. I'll go back and look at that. That's an yeah. awesome set. And for the and just so people know that are listening, um, we will post on our RSS feed the link to the site so that you so you can uh, thank you view these lovely uh, lovely photos as well. John, I have a question about sure. these. Actually, a couple questions. First of all, what when you just said these are literally locked up in someone's garage, reminds there are so many stories that I hear hear like this. Um, including uh, one that also just continues to amaze me. There is a collection that the, well, I don't think they're called the Confederate Confederate Air Force anymore. I think it's Commemorative Air Force. They came across uh, a guy who had worked on uh, breaking down B-17s and B-24s, you know, for scrap metal after World War II. And he had the foresight to basically take off the nose art and these these pieces of nose art were literally found in a barn 60 wow. years later. They're on display now at the EAA Museum up in Oshkosh, a, a phenomenal collection. But it's same type of thing, randomly stored away. No one knew about them and then discovered years wow. later. So that's incredible. You know, lucky for us. And what else, you know, yeah. what else got tossed in the dumpster and wasn't recovered or wasn't rescued by a, a diligent or, or curious, you know, a passerby? How, who knows what we've missed? I, I imagine this is a tiny, tiny fraction of what was was scrapped and burned up someplace. Yeah, and my other question is, and apologies if you if you already addressed this, but I'm curious: were the you mentioned that these were produced primarily in 1968? So that was what about a year or so before the cancellation yes. of the program. Yes. So were these purportedly used as marketing tools for? for the government or other potential maybe subcontractors. It, it's really curious why, if it was such a clandestine program or classified program, why you would even make artwork available. Yeah, see, that's people. a fascinating topic in itself. You have, to, you have to remember that the MOL was only lightly classified at first. The Air Force, of course, wanted the world to know that it was the big, the big dog in human spaceflight. And so when the dinosaur, the X-20 dinosaur, was canceled and the MOL came along. <clears throat> the Air Force says, "Well, of course, you know, Harumph, it's a military program. We can't talk about it here. Let me tell you all about it." And it was, and it, and if the Air Force wasn't talking about it, then all the contractors, those that were proposing to be selected, and even those that were eventually selected, were not bashful about talking about their contributions to the MOL program. So there was, there's a lot of information out there from '63, '64, '65. And it sort of peters out in 66, but a lot of the stuff was was not classified, even 66, 67, 68. But what happened, the program didn't get authorized until August of 65, and that was when the National Reconnaissance Office said, okay, okay, we can see some value to this, so we'll pitch in with the Air Force. Because up until then, it was just a study. The Air Force announced it in 63, but they couldn't get Lyndon Johnson to sign off on it until – the NRO threw <clears throat> threw in with them, uh, sort of like when the Air Force threw in with NASA to, to get the shuttle justified, you know, 20 years later. 
so that that was when the classification really came down. And there was there are discussions in the the memos and the the documentation that has been since declassified about the white ha- <clears throat> the white half of MOL and the black half of MOL. The white half is the part that's not classified or only lightly classified, and the dark and the black half is the part that's that's the National Reconnaissance Office, and it is ultra super secret double double jeopardy classified and if you look at the the art that uh, jacoby did it's all about the the habitation module and there is nothing 0.0 about the the classified cameras and things that are that take up half of the 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 length of the manned orbiting laboratory vehicle itself that was just something that was not even apparently discussed much at douglas aircraft company when they built the mock-up in 68, and they shipped it east to uh, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, where General Electric was the integrating uh, contractor for the classified stuff. And I'm guessing that uh, at that point, General Electric took the mock-up and added their top-secret classified systems, the camera systems and the recorders and all that stuff, so that there would actually be a functional mock-up for the, the MOL pilots to train in. But there's, I make one point, and it's I, I hope it's not behind that 404 that that Tom mentioned but there is a uh, one point in the, uh, the the paintings where you see the two guys at work in front of the console and two very big chunks of the console are blank because that's where the top secret instrumentation would have been and Jacoby didn't know it and the Douglas folks didn't talk about it they just they just left those panels blank because General Electric later on would put their their instruments into those blank parts of the console. But Jacoby would have us think that these guys are at work in space in this fully functional thing. And, oh, look, here are the, the switches and the buttons that would control all the top-secret cameras, and we're just not showing them to you. They're just a blank part of the, the console. So there's, a, there's, again, a very, very interesting backstory there. And when I tell you all these details, Understand that I have these are details that I have surmised. I mean, there is very little documentation except for the stuff that's in the the declassified uh, records that that were released in 2015. So when I tell you about Jacoby doing this artwork and art director telling him how to do stuff, that's just because of things that people like Mike Bashat, the artist who used to work with Jacoby at uh, Douglas, uh, has told me that's how we did things in those days. So a lot of this is my inference. And I would dearly, dearly love for somebody that was there then to come along and say, no, John, you got that all wrong, and here's what they were really doing. I'd like to get some real ground truth from these people someday. I wonder if these, this artwork was part of a, a disinformation campaign. Boy, you know, that's um, in the way that image- that's, a great, that's a great hypothesis, and I sort of joke about that in my public presentations because uh, some of the artwork is so obviously wrong. I mean, they show it going into the wrong inclination. They show it lifting into a, too high an orbit. You know, and it's sort of like uh, I, I kid them and say, uh, so if the Russians were trying to guess what MOL was about from this artwork, they'd get it all wrong. They'd be looking in the wrong place at the wrong time for the satellite to fly over. But I, I never seriously considered until this very instant that it, maybe it was part of a big disinformation campaign. Who knows? Why would they be? be putting together all this information uh, when they've already got their customer, which is the Air Force, and the Air Force is already paying them to fly this program. But at the same time, uh, Douglas was pitching the MOL to NASA for its future space station programs. You know, NASA was going to fly the, the what became Skylab. It was the originally the orbital workshop, the, the upper stage of the S-4B, 
but they only had a couple of those. They had the, the flight one that did fly, and then they had the backup one, which is now at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. And after that, if NASA wanted to be in the space station business, it was going to have to start building its own space stations. And Douglas said, look, we can crank these things off the assembly line, and uh, they will already be flight qualified. Wouldn't you like to buy one? We'll take the top secret camera equipment out, and you can put in sky telescopes or Earth observation, or you can put in biological laboratories. You can fly as many of these as you want for specific missions. So I think, you know, it was, it was along about 67, 68 that uh, McDonnell Douglas was pitching this to NASA, and NASA eventually decided, no, they, were, they couldn't afford to go that direction. But this may, this might have been, sort of double duty, sort of uh, for the Air Force's uh, propaganda, and, and by that I mean the outreach purposes, and maybe also to make NASA interested in buying more of these things. We hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with John Charles on the Manned Orbiting Laboratory. We'll continue with MOL on our next podcast. For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.